Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Love, as the old song goes, is a many splendid thing. It knows not rich from poor, nor black from white. When two people meet and fall in love, it can transcend all barriers, and the desire for two lovers to be together can drive them to overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. This will be the last themed episode of The Extraordinarium. In future, the stories will be a little bit more diverse and have a less obvious connection. So what better theme to end this format on than love? So sit back while I tell you three stories of love, dedication and devotion. Prajumna Kuma Mahananja was born in a remote Indian village in 1949. He was considered an untouchable due to the caste system, but nonetheless a prophecy made by the village astrologer predicted that he would marry a woman from a faraway land, a musician who owned a forest and would be born under the zodiac sign Taurus. PK, as he would come to be known, grew to be a talented artist and while studying at Delhi College of Art made a name for himself with a portrait of Indira Gandhi. Portraits would become his bread and butter and it was while he was working as a street artist that he was approached by Charlotte von Schedven, a 19-year-old Swedish tourist and aristocrat who asked if he would sketch her. When PK looked up at her, things went a little otherworldly for the young man. Quote, when she appeared before my easel, I felt as though I didn't have any weight. Words are not accurate enough to express such a feeling. Her eyes were so blue and big and round, I felt as if she was not looking at me, she was looking inside me, like an X-ray machine. End quote. PK was a little nervous. He felt he wouldn't be able to do her beauty justice, and he asked her to come back, which she did. She would come back three times in three days, and not out of pity for the impoverished street artist either. You see, Charlotte had been having dreams in childhood of one day meeting what she described as a jungle boy, and PK, with his wild curls, somehow reminded her of these dreams. As it should happen, in line with the prophecy made by the village astrologer, Charlotte was not only from a faraway land, she was a musician whose family owned a forest, and she was born under the astrological sign Taurus. Dreams and prophecies aside, the two were mutually attracted and a whirlwind romance ensued over the next few weeks that resulted in a tribal wedding. But unfortunately, Charlotte was out of time and had to return to Sweden. She offered to pay for PK's flight, but the proud young artist with the wild curly locks said he would find his own way. Too impoverished to simply save up for a ticket on a plane, it would take him another two years and selling all of his worldly possessions, but finally he was able to afford a second-hand bicycle. And on the 22nd of January 1977, he set off for Sweden. It would take him five months to travel the 6,000 miles, and his journey would take him through Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Germany, Austria and Denmark, along what was known at the time as the Hippie Trail. He had no maps, he just followed the setting sun. 
Along the way, he received assistance from other hippies on the trail and sold sketches and finally arrived on the 28th of May, 1977. PK and Charlotte renewed their vows in a full Indian wedding, had two children and, as tacky as it sounds, have lived happily ever after. The bicycle now adorns the grounds of their home as a garden sculpture. PK now a world-renowned and successful artist, has no idea why people make such a big deal about his 6,000-mile odyssey. I did what I had to, he says. I was cycling for love, but never loved cycling. It's simple. Valerie had music in her veins. Born in Mesa's Springs, Virginia, on the 23rd of June 1929, her mother, her uncle and auntie were in a popular country and folk group, and by the time Valerie was ten, she was performing with them. The lineup evolved, and by the 1940s, Valerie was performing alongside her mother and two sisters, a group that would find itself getting airplay on the radio. And one of their biggest fans was a young lad by the name of J.R., which wasn't his initials. Apparently, his parents couldn't agree on a name, so they compromised. And on the 26th of February 1932, J.R. was born. His childhood was marred by the horrific death of his older brother, Jack, killed in an industrial accident, who J.R. idolised. The death had a profound effect on young J.R., who is said to have never been quite the same since. J.R. would grow up, find himself doing a succession of menial jobs, until eventually he left home and joined the Air Force. Valerie, on the other hand, was becoming quite a name in showbiz, and had joined the cast of the nationally syndicated Grand Ole Opry, and this would lead to a chance meeting with honky-tonk singer Carl Smith. In 1952, they would get married, and Valerie fell pregnant with their daughter Carleen. J.R. had also found love. Before heading to Germany, where he had been posted, he met a woman named Vivian, and a whirlwind romance ensued. In 1954, upon his return to American soil, they married, and would have four daughters together. Roseanne, Kathy, Cindy, and Tara. J.R. settled down and got a job selling appliances, but he had a hobby. He played guitar and he sang, and eventually, through his brother he would meet Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant, and they formed a trio. J.R. was a rather talented songwriter, and in time, he would find himself on the road to stardom, ultimately making his first appearance on the Grand Ole Opry in 1956. He was introduced to the stage by Valerie's husband, but it was later, backstage, that a more important introduction was made, when J.R. was introduced to Valerie. J.R. had been a long-time fan and said to Valerie, I've always wanted to meet you, to which Valerie replied, I feel like I know you already. She would later say, I can't remember anything else we talked about except his eyes. In time, the two would begin touring together. Valerie divorced, remarried, and divorced again, with another daughter, Rosie, brought into the world. J.R. would divorce Vivian too, and Valerie and J.R. would become close, with Valerie helping J.R. overcome his addictions. But neither confronted their strong feelings for one another, until one night, on stage, 
in front of a 7,000-strong crowd, JR, who was better known as Johnny, Johnny Cash, proposed to Valerie, who professionally went by her middle name, June, June Carter. The two were married a few weeks later and had a son, John Carter Cash. Johnny Cash and June Carter would be almost inseparable for the next three decades, until June passed away in May 2003. The heartbroken Johnny would follow her in September. You still fascinate and inspire me, Johnny wrote to June on her 65th birthday. You influence me for the better. You're the object of my desire, the number one reason for my existence. Annie Shapiro was watching television when she dozed off. It was a bit of a surprise that she went to sleep when she did, as what was on television at that moment was fairly compelling viewing. There were news reports about an event that shocked the entire world. US President John F. Kennedy had been shot, and though no official announcement had yet been made regarding his condition, things weren't looking good for the young president. Nonetheless, Annie Shapiro dozed off, and when she woke up, a tad dazed and disoriented, she asked her husband Martin to put the TV back on. She had hoped she hadn't slept through the comedy show I Love Lucy. Unfortunately, she had slept through I Love Lucy and quite a few other things. She had not only slept through that evening's episode of I Love Lucy, but the following week's episode as well. The advent of colour television, the hippie movement, the moon landing, the end of the Vietnam War, the personal computer, the fall of the Soviet Union and the dawn of the internet. Annie Shapiro had woken up in 1992, almost 30 years after she nodded off. While watching the news updates of the Kennedy assassination, the then 50-year-old had suffered a stroke. Mrs Shapiro had quite a bit of adjustment to make psychologically and emotionally. Mr Shapiro, though recognisable to her, looked elderly and frail, and of course, it was just a matter of time before she caught reflection of herself in a mirror. A quote from Martin Shapiro. When she first looked into a mirror, she wanted to die. She hollered and then cried over all those lost years. End quote. There was also some consternation about the fate of her son Marshall. The day before the stroke, a row had erupted after Marshall had crashed the family car and Martin had given him his marching orders. A mixture of relief and sadness washed over Annie as she learned that the rift wasn't permanent, but the 16-year-old lad she remembered was now a middle-aged father of two of her four grandchildren. Mr Shapiro called his son so the two could speak, but Annie hesitated, not for fear of what to say, but because the phone was cordless and she was momentarily baffled at how it worked. More shocks were to follow, as she was informed she was the only survivor of her siblings and that many of the friends they had in 1963 had passed away also. Her daughter Marilyn, who was now 55, married and the mother of her two other grandchildren, flew in to comfort her. Annie would stay awake for two days straight, talking and asking questions and trying to catch up and come to terms with the missing 30 years the stroke had taken from her. But one thing was clear... Despite being catatonic for three decades, she was still at home. Not the one she knew, she was now in Florida, 
Martin had decided to move there from Toronto when he retired, and when he did, he brought the love of his life with him. Despite her vegetative state, Martin had kept her at home and lovingly cared for her all those years. The first two of those years, the completely paralysed Annie wasn't even capable of blinking, and Martin would administer eye drops every few hours. Despite her pupils being unresponsive, he got her cataract surgery when she needed it. Despite being unable to move under her own power, he got her a hip replacement. He fed, bathed and dressed her, and each night he put her to bed where he would sleep beside her, every night for 30 years, steadfastly refusing to put her in a home. He is quoted as having said, When I made my marriage vows and promised to stay together in sickness and in health, I meant it. End quote. And his dedication wasn't lost on his Annie, who fell in love with him all over again. Quote, we could both hardly walk, but Annie wanted me to take her dancing. End quote. And dance, they did. And for all we know, in some other realm, they continue that dance. And their extraordinary love lives on. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.